And welcome everybody to another Smart Money Circle show. I'm Adam Sarhan. With me today is Michael Weening, who's the president and CEO of Calix, ticker symbol C-A-L-X. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Adam. Really appreciate it. So I always like to begin. Can you tell us a little about your story and how you got to where you are today, please? Sure. So I have gone through a, an interesting career journey. I was at Microsoft for a long period. I was at Dell when it was a $2 billion company. I worked in Europe when I was at Microsoft, got recruited back by a large telecommunications company, Bell Canada, to, to run a turnaround. Then I went to Salesforce. They actually shipped me off to Tokyo, where I learned how to run a cloud and software company. Um, and then I ran a global job before actually landing at Calix, which was something that came from a recruiter where I was considering going to a pre-IPO, very large cloud company that you would know. I was considering what do I do at Salesforce? And then out of the blue came this company. And with the way they described it is there was a, at that time, a, a 13, 14 year old hardware company that was going through a significant transformation. The founder of the company, his name's Carl Russo. This was his third multi-billion dollar attempt. So the first, the second company he had, he stole, which was Sarant to Cisco for 7 billion. The one before that he sold for $2 billion. So this was his third company. And I figured that with his vision, after a short conversation of how to transform the company into a software and cloud and really transform the industry, that it was something I wanted to do. And that's why I'm at Calix seven wow. and a half years ago. Yes. Love that. So let's talk about the actual business. Can you please let us know a little bit more about Calix and some of your competitive advantages? Right. So Calix, we help broadband providers do really three things with their business. The leveraging our cloud and software platforms and the appliances that go underneath of it. We help them simplify the business, which means that they can um, take what is traditionally a very complex business where it takes 18 to 24 months to do the simplest thing. And where by using the cloud and software platform, you can simplify everything that you're doing from an operational point of view by abstracting the complexity into the software and the cloud. And that allows customers to do things like, you know, where they would normally bring on a new solution into their business in 18 to 24 months. They're now doing it in seven to 30 days. It's a radical transformation of their business. The second thing we help them do is, is really excite their subscribers. So if you think about a, the cable and broadband companies who serve you, how many of us are excited by the things that they do and the good services that they provide, right? It's a it's an industry that's notorious for either a negative net promoter score or single digit. And you know, the only thing that people like to do at at parties is actually talk about how bad their their cable and telco telephone companies suck, right? And right. so with our software and cloud platform, we give them analytics and instrumentation so that whether a small company or, or a big company, what they can do is really understand that subscriber and deliver really interesting experiences, which is why on average, our customers have a net promoter score around between 50 and 90, believe it or not. And if you compare and contrast that to an Apple, Apple's at 58. So delivering those really exciting experiences. And then the last part that we do is, is grow, help them grow. And growth means to multiple things. So if you're obviously a, a profit orientated broadband provider, you know, family owned, PE led or public, it's all about growing, you know, margin, profits, all those different elements. But 42% of our customers are actually not for profits. If you look in rural US, um, it is actually run by cooperatives. There are thousands of cooperatives who are local to the community and they run them as not for profit where the profits go back to members. In their case, growth means something different, which is actually transform the lives of their of their members, but then also grow their community and help rural America thrive. So in a nutshell, that's what we do. That's really great. And then, so you're able to go deeper, I guess, 
you you find these companies that have recurring revenue, they have stable customer base. I'm not switching my broadband provider anytime soon, but I guess increase my net promoter score. So I have a better experience with that pr broadband provider and allow them to, would they sell me more products as well? Or would it just be? Yes. Well, right. So what do loyal companies do? Buy more, right? right. Now the, the tradition. So the first thing is to your point, I would say table stakes are create this incredible experience and that incredible experience. We've also helped them diversify the business, which is very difficult for them to do. So we, we help them with the residential, but we also help them with small business, medium business, also the relationship with the mayor and the town and education. So how do you build a very diverse broadband business? Once you have that table stakes of, I have a great experience, I have a high loyalty, I'm telling all my friends, I'm telling fellow business owners about how great the experience is, then I'm open to, I'd like to buy more. And that right. buy more part has always been a significant challenge. So what we have done in this transformation we went through, which is how do I actually make it so partners can uh, integrate into our platform? This is a, a purely a platform ecosystem play. The platform integrates or the partner integrates into our platform and then they have access to over a thousand broadband providers overnight. And for the broadband provider, instead of spending two years trying to make that partner work in their business, which is almost impossible, too costly, very risky, now what they can do instead is Couch shows up and says, hey, we have a new service that you can sell. Here are the marketing analytics so you can understand who to sell it to from a propensity to buy point of view. Here's marketing support and all the different elements. Let's let's launch the product and they're up and running in, again, seven to 30 days. It's an incredible opportunity. I love that. That is fantastic. Okay, thank you for that because now it crystallized. It makes perfect sense. So let's talk about risk. What are some, A, how do you handle risk? And then what are some mistakes you see people make with respect to risk management? Um, so how I handle risk is the first thing is accept that it's a reality of life. I read a study, I think it was last week in the Wall Street Journal or something like that, maybe Harvard, can't remember, but they basically said as CEOs, 39% of our time is consumed by, you know, urgent issues, right? Hey, the risk and challenges are a part of life. And so, you know, you want to encourage your team members to have a balanced view of things. So balance the risks, right? Also, embrace that risk is if you're going to be a different type of company, risk is a core part of what you do every single day. And if you don't take risks, you'll never succeed because, you know, the people who actually do the same thing as everybody else, we could have, you know, our founder, he could have kept us as a hardware company and we could have plugged along, made reasonable margins, but we never would have become the company we were. And, and when I joined, you know, our market cap was $250 million. We were making significant investments or losing a lot of money, almost out of cash. And um, at that $250 million market cap, you know, we would have plugged along as a hardware company. And frankly, that's what everybody in this industry has done. Right. Instead, he saw, he had a vision for where we were going to go. He recognized the power of a platform model, this ecosystem model like Salesforce has done and investing in it over the long term so we can be a different company. And we took that risk. And so throughout it, it was just accepting that, yes, we're taking a big swim for the fences. There's going to be a lot of people who are constantly saying, I would rather you only do the safe thing, right? Um, right. But the reality is, is if you only do the safe thing, there are no payoffs. And for right. Calix to understand the magnitude of the payoff, you know, both in real term today, but also the future, we are you now. So right now we are unique in our market. All of our competitors have not done it and frankly are incapable of doing it because right. If I, as a public, I'm the CEO now, I took it over a few years ago, right? But it was founder led when we made this transformation and lost a lot of money to make the transformation. 
Had I tried to do this, we, he and I joke, I would have been fired 10 times over, right? And he jokes, you know, I, he should have been fired 10 times over for the amount of money that he lost. But because he was the largest shareholder, he could say, no, I'm actually pursuing this massive vision that's audacious. I'm going to transform the company with the right leadership team and the payoff's going to be huge. So what's the payoff? Well, when I joined, it was, uh, you know, $4.35 stock, $250 million market cap with a 32% margin and running out of cash. Um, this year, you know, in Q4, we haven't announced yet, but in Q4, we were projected to cross revenues organically of a billion dollars, which only one in 400 companies do from inception to um, going public. So we've crossed that milestone. We have a mountain of cash. Margins are um, in the mid 50s. If we had not actually had the pandemic, which was annoying to us because had the pandemic not happened, problem with the pandemic is raised all boats. Had we actually just not had a pandemic, we would have been able to con you know, um, candidly destroy our competition faster um, because the, the difference between the two of us would have been e even more stark. So. Um, we have a significant amount of cash and our margins have gone to 55 had not been for the pandemic. We'd be at the 60 point era area. Right. Yeah. So we built this very healthy business that, you know, and at the current stock price, I think our, you know, we range between two and a half and $6 billion is what we've been up and down on the, you know, we're a growth stock. So there's a lot of variability in there. Um, but we've between two and a half billion and six. And had we actually not taken that risk, we would still be like, uh, a company with a multiple of one to one on revenue. And the best part about it is more importantly, now that we're in this place like Salesforce did, and yeah. no one is even close to us. If you, we're in a blue ocean all by ourselves yeah. and next year in 2025 and the end of 2024, the U S government is putting $62 billion, more than 25 years worth of investment into broadband. Wow. And and we are smack in the middle of that market. We are the ones helping our broadband customers radically transform their businesses. And when that that tsunami of money enters, again, you know, beside the fact that private equity investment, family investment, all that's continuing on, but yeah. this tsunami of money that has never been seen before in the US market is landing and we're the dominant provider there. The upside is significant and we're uniquely positioned. Everybody's been complaining that that funding has been taking longer. I bluntly am really happy that it's not coming till the end of 24 into 25, because right. frankly, it just allows us to, to expand our footprint, win more customers and be in a more dominant position with a big honking catcher's mitt to catch that money. Yeah, I love that. And yeah, you, as you mentioned, you are a growth stock. The earnings have grown consecutively every each of the last four quarters by double digits. Sales have grown double digits. So hats yeah. off to you. I mean, really, really great job. Let's talk about some timeless lessons, some that you've learned along the way that you'd like to share with the audience, please. Sure. The The most important lesson I learned um, right from the get-go is that, you know, as a leader, is that success is about people. That's mm -hmm. the first thing. And so, you know, we all talk about who do we focus on. Um, actually, again, I, I go back to this is something that was reinforced by our founder, Carl. Uh, you can look him up. He's very hard to find. You know, he doesn't really have a social media profile, um, but you can go look him up. And one of the things that he always stated was that if you actually take a prioritization of what the company should be doing, you should always start with people, then you do customers. And if you actually take care of your people and your customers, then that third group, the investors will be really happy because right. it's the people that it's the people and the customers and the partners who actually are the ones 
who make investors happy by helping you build a successful business. And so that's probably the most important lesson that I've learned, which is always focus on the team that you have. Um, and a big part of that means, you know, how do you actually have a great culture so you can attract new talent? That was critical for us is that we really had to help people understand our purpose and our purpose is all around helping broadband providers change their communities. And that really resonates with them. You know, I'm kind of older. I'm 55. Um, I really wasn't grown with purpose. I was really grown with, um, hey, you're poor. Don't be poor anymore. So I just tried to make money. Right. right. Uh, right. But but the younger generation, you know, my sons and all the all the younger generation that I talked to, purpose is really important. And it makes logical sense because I pursued money up until a point. And then once I had enough money, like once I felt comfortable, like I hit, had achieved that safety level, then it really came about, I wanted to do meaningful work. And so I think that purpose is really also the second part, which is really important is you got to really amplify the purpose of your company and how the team can say, okay, it's great that I get paid to take care of my family and my future, but then also why is what I do so meaningful? And that's something we're really proud of. And I really do believe that that's one of the reasons why in 2023, we were uh, basically won the award as the best place to work in Silicon Valley, which, yeah. you know, when you consider, consider who we are up against, yeah. we are super proud of, right? And then, yeah. you know, and then the third timeless lesson I would say is always be learning. And we really try to encourage that with our customers, but also our team members is you really need to embrace, you know, that we talked about risk, making mistakes, you need to read, um, you need to consume right. knowledge as much as you can, yeah. like, you know, I was asking you questions before we started here about your book. Right. And so it's it's already going on my Kindle list. And because mm -hmm. I find to your point, you know, the psychology of investment fascinating. I would love to understand how you think. And, you know, and, and one of the things I always put on LinkedIn is, and by the way, anyone's listening, feel free to send me a LinkedIn invite. Um, I'm always posting and I post about different things because um, I really have a firm belief. I, I like to read what people are reading. I like to read their philo uh, philosophies and learnings because, by having a, a wildly diverse number of inputs, I think we become better as people. Yeah, no, I love that, 100%. So that's, those are some really, really good lessons. Thank you. How about some timeless mistakes? And how do you avoid them? So I would say if I look back on my career, I, well, so I'm going to give you a people, uh, so a leadership one and a personal one. I'll start with the personal one. The biggest mistake I ever made in my career was actually taking a job for money. And... Um, it's not on my LinkedIn. Um, and that's because I was going to go work for Satan and it was horrible. It was like three months of, it was three horrible months in my life. And, you know, the reason why is because I still remember they, they pushed me really aggressively. I was working at Dell, you know, Dell was a $2 billion company. I was wildly successful. I had a great career going on. And then they came to me about how I could triple my income. And I was, I was younger. I was blind. I'd never made that mistake before. And so I went there but they were horrible people. I, I kind of make the joke that I went to work in the culture of Satan, but it was, it was that it was EMC in the nineties. It was yeah. a horrible place. It was, mm -hmm. everything was about money, screw the customer, bad morals and ethics. And after three months, you know, um, I cut my losses. I said, I can't work here because I'm not immoral. Right. And so I, I quit it. So, and to this day, whenever I've, and by the way, that's one of the reasons why I joined Calix, I was considering joining this very, this, taking this other job with the leave Salesforce, and it was insanely lucrative, but in the back of my head was this nag of that. The only career mistake you've ever made is when you took a job for money. And the job was, 
was really lucrative, but it was the same thing I was doing and really, and so it was really freaking boring. And then Calix came and said, Hey, here's a learning opportunity. We're going to change an industry. I, I met Carl, who to this day is the smartest man I've ever met. You know, he got accepted to university at 14. He's one of those kind of people. And, wow. you know, he, un, yeah, and he unnecessarily uses large words, right? So um, all the time, right? Yeah. Which I mock him for. Uh, but I have learned over the last seven, and it's been every day I get up and I feel excited. And I'm, you know, it's not about the money. It's actually about I get to work with incredible customers. I'm, I'm uh, you know traveling today out in the snow, getting to meet a customer. And I'm super excited about it. It's great to spend time with them to learn about their business and how we can help them. So that's, that's the, the personal lesson. The leadership lesson is actually something I posted on as I reflected on 2023. The greatest weakness I see in leaders is the, is the inability to move quickly on removing low performers. It is something that you know I see time and time again. If I was to pick the most common weakness that I see in leaders, that's it. And the reason why is because there's there's two elements to it. And in fact, what I put on my LinkedIn post was we had Stephen Covey, who wrote The Speed of Trust, speak at our, our customer event in October. We had 3,000 people there. He spoke. And then we had him back to our leadership meeting in December, where we had all of our people leaders from around the world, about 350 of them together, because we're an all-virtual culture. And so we bring them all together once a year. And, and what he talked about was trust is really about two components. One is the ability to deliver results. The other one is integrity and capability and all those things. And one of my peers, John DeRocher, he basically had this epiphany. He said, well, you always talk, we always talk about how people have a tough time removing low performers. He goes, this is how you categorize it. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, look, so if you look at a low performer, they're, they're in one of two buckets. One, they have great integrity. They have great character, but they're not delivering results. And therefore as a manager, gosh, you really wish that they could get over the line and do it. And, yeah. and so what you do is you take extra time to try and help them because you, you care about them and you're a good person. But the problem is they don't have the capabilities to actually over it to, to achieve the goals. Yeah. And then, and therefore it's really hard. The other one, which is a bit easier, which is they don't have character and integrity, but they're making the results, but they're toxic in the culture. Yeah. You know, you, you know, then a lot of a weak manager will go, yeah, but if I lose them, you know, they're at a 200% of plan. How do I, right? Yeah. So this is a great framework to cat, to basically categorize which bucket they're in. And then also really encourage the leader to make a decision faster. I, I love that. So thank you very much for that. Let's talk about some obstacles and adversity. How do you handle adversity and what are some obstacles, Michael, that you had to overcome on your journey? <clears throat> um, so how do we handle obstacles? So, you know, I think the first one is you have to identify them clearly and not be delusional, right? <laughs> I always say like, and, and I think that's the other part too. Well, I make, that's not a joke, right? Like people actually are a bit delusional. They're like, they're like, you know, oh no, it's not that bad bull, right? You know, if your gut says something's bad and, and I always say good news should travel fast, bad news should travel faster, right? And now, now I don't, I don't subscribe to what Bill Gates always did because I always thought he was a jerk when he did this. He would do a business review and he would, someone would come up and say, well, here's the good things that are going on in my business. And he said, yeah, I don't give a shit about that. I want to hear your bad stuff. Right. And I think that's a horrible way as a leader to manage it because what you're doing is you're not giving them an opportunity to feel good about their contribution and you're right. just, you know, focusing on the negative. So I think we have to have a balance, but bad news needs to travel fast and, you know, another thing I say is that lone wolves get shot. Mm -hmm. So what also happens is that 
there's this mentality of, okay, I've got a problem. I'm going to solve it myself. The reason why that news has to travel fast is because lone wolves do get shot. The pack wins. And right. so if you've got bad news, you better get everybody involved as fast as you can, because honestly, okay, we'll acknowledge it. Let's say it's your fault. Okay. That's going to last for about eight seconds. You bozo, why'd you do that? Right. But right. then we're going to be like, okay, so we got a problem now. How are we going to fix it? Now, if you make that same mistake three times in a row, that's a broader issue and there's going to be an issue. So that's how I deal with risk is that let's get it surfaced and then let's all pile on and say, okay, how do we build a plan to solve it? So that's really how I think about the obstacles. And now what obstacles, what obstacle, sorry, you have a question on that? No, no, that, that makes perfect sense. If you want to go into obstacles, by all means. Well, and then, you know, so that's how you deal with issues and obstacles. And then the obstacles, look, the obstacle that Calix faced as a company is, is we are we are the innovator's dilemma, right? So if if you've read the innovator's dilemma or the book that I like better, which is Lead and Disrupt, which was a follow on out of Stanford, and it basically takes the philosophies of the innovator's dilemma and, and provides a, I think a much more practical framework because I don't agree that the innovator's dilemma says the only way you can actually innovate inside a large company is to create a separate company. I don't. That's not practical, right? Yeah. But Lead and Disrupt gives you a great framework, and in fact, we had the professor who wrote that on. We, I, I worked with them kind of three years into my role. I said, well, I find what you read or what you wrote. We've been following it. You know, should you come in? And, and he said, okay, walk me through what you've done. He goes, you know, you're doing our book, right? You're doing it right. right. Now, only one in a hundred can accomplish it because it's how do you actually can cha- completely change the business while being public, you know, it would have been easier to be private, but while being public, meeting goals, and then keeping investors and all those elements happy, um, it was very hard. And so the obstacle for us was actually, how do you transform from a dumb box company hardware, into yeah. a software cloud and appliance company? Mm-hmm. You know, hardware still part of it, but it's it's an appliance with all the complexity abstracted upwards. And in the end, the biggest challenge in all of that, the biggest obstacle was people mm-hmm. because the people who had got us, you know, had built the first company yeah. were not the people who we're going to build the second company and to understand the magnitude of what we do. We process 15 terabytes of data an hour for our customers. So, you know, we're, we, and we're at the forefront of their marketing and their call centers and everything they do from a field service point of view versus here's a a box to run a fiber network. It's a radically, we run their business end to end. And so, you know, Carl, when he first started on that journey 13 years ago, he tells, told us, tells a story where he stood up in front of everybody and he said, here's where we're going to go. And he had a vision for where we're going to go again, 13 years ago. Um, and they all said, well, what about the people? And he said, oh, it's going to be about a 20% change. Well, actually he got his number backwards. It was an 80% change of staff. Um, and only 20% actually evolved with it and were able to, to stay forward. So from an obstacle point of view, that was the biggest obstacle. Then, you know, the, the second obstacle was as we were in this recruiting phase, and you think about how hot, like our big growth was in, you know, started in 2019, was how do you attract the right talent? And that's where, you know, as we had a new invet, we had a, a board member joined from Indeed. And I remember when we were recruiting him into a board position, he said to me, he goes, how is it that I don't know you, right? You're the most interesting cloud company in the Valley that I just don't know. He goes, and by the way, I hear that all the time, right? Everyone say, how is it that I don't know Calix? Because what you're doing is so fascinating. You've gone on this incredible journey. You have these incredible customers and our customers are just amazing. 
you know, you have all these great customers. How do I not know about this great business that you built? And I said, well, because we're in a, a very specific niche in the marketplace and unless you know what we're doing. And so I would say that was our second obstacle is how do you educate, first of all, um, folks to join the company. And that was where we got really purpose centric around helping communities, changing education, bridging the digital divide, helping small businesses thrive, protecting parents, you know, helping parents protect their children from cyber bullies and depression and suicide and all these kind of things. Right. And once they understand that that's what our technology is really enabling, people got on board. So I would say those are the two biggest obstacles. I love that. And then, um, let's talk about advice. What's the best piece of advice you'd like to give the audience or give your 30 year old self? The best piece of advice I'd give my 30 year old self is that, um, any, everything, you know, like it's a more of a philosophy and I, that I've retained is that all the bad things that sucked through your career, they're for a reason. And they're probably not, they are the most valuable things you'll learn. So, you know, we all talk about if I was to go back and change something, the pro and there was an incredible article with with the um, CEO of Nvidia, mm -hmm. who uh, about I think it was about three weeks ago in the Wall Street Journal, and what he basically talked about was creating a trillion dollar value company, and he talked about how if he was to go back and talk to his older self, he would say don't do it, right? And and the reason why he would say don't do it is he said it's too freaking painful. He goes the the challenges, everyone beating up on you to because you think about what he did with that company, it's it's this it's soul sucking, right? Yeah. It's a huge price that he paid. Yeah. And so I think, you know, that's why when we say what will you tell your 30 year old self, just say, actually, all those bad things that are going to happen to you are really valuable and they will form you into the person that you are and they will lead to success long-term, but just keep at it. Right. What I wouldn't tell my old self is, is actually how much pain was coming Understood. because in, in retrospect, you know, I, if I was to go back, there was a whole bunch of things. When I look back at it, you were insane. Like, yeah, You know, when I went to Salesforce to go to Tokyo, right, I'd never been to Asia. And what happened was, is that we had left Europe, we came back to Canada, I was doing this incredible job. And I sat down with my family and I said, okay, well, you guys wanted to go do the international and we did Europe. And I said, I want to go to Asia because I want to be a global leader. And I, we've got all kinds of European experience. It was great. And, and the boys were going into high school. And I said to my sons, I said, you know, would you guys go to Asia? And they were like, Okay, you know, again, they didn't really. I, my wife was excited, but the boys didn't really. They're young, and they're like, "Hey, the parents said yes," but they were going into high school, and I still remember reaching out to recruiters in Asia, and all of them telling me I was insane. They said, "You, you have no experience in Asia." And I'm like, "And I, I run at that time. I'd run four transformations, like turnarounds of businesses at Bell Canada. I'd just taken it from a five-year failing business to." 14 quarters of double digit growth, massive shift in employee sentiment and customer satisfaction. You know, I'm like, Hey, that was a billion dollar business. I just turned around who, why wouldn't you want me? And they're like, you don't know anything about Asia. And in fact, at that time, I'd never been there. And then what happened was, you know, through constantly reaching out to a whole bunch of people, the opportunity came up and, um, I went, you know, we up and lift and went to Tokyo. Now in retrospect, if I was to actually legitimately do the pros and cons and the risks of that job, especially because of the fact that yeah. 99 out of a hundred people who do an expat in Tokyo fail, mm -hmm. right? Had I actually, in retrospect, would I was tell myself you should take that risk? No, I almost got fired twice, like, because it was so insane, yeah. but you know, I, I was very fortunate, you know, in that case, it was, I have a LinkedIn article on my profile, which was around moving to um, Japan 
And and, and it all comes from um, my third weekend, I met a Canadian guy who was working, working for one of the big five. I can't remember which one, Deloitte or Anderson or something like that. We had a, we had a, I was at Salesforce. We had a partner lunch. And at the end of it, he looked at me and he said, um, so what are you going to be? Are you going to be the 99% of expats who fail in Japan? Or are you going to be the successful 1%? And it just stopped me. Bang. And, and I, I'm like, well, I'd like to be the successful 1%. What do I, he go, I go, you've been here for 25 years. What do I have to do? And in that article on LinkedIn, he basically laid out, here's how you will succeed in Japan. And this is why when, you know, an expat from the United States or something like that comes in, why they all fail. Again, to understand Japan culture, for the first X thousands of years, whenever a foreigner came into Japan, they killed them. Yeah, <laughs> right? I, Wasn't yeah. it? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and so, so you're a foreigner coming in. They've got patience, right? Like, you know, they'll just wait you out and expect you to, and then they'll ship you home. And so by taking the approaches that he guided me, like how fortuitous was, you know, the graciousness of others who, who bless us with ideas, right? Well, he... He was just gracious enough to share. And, and in the end, if I think about all the greatest things I've learned is from all these amazing people who took the time to care and say, I'll give you advice. And then you have to decide whether or not it's good advice or bad advice. And in that case, my gosh, it completely adjusted my thought process and was the reason why I was successful. But almost, you know, again, I'm not I, I'm someone who pushes for change, takes the risk. So I almost got fired twice. But, you know, because of him, I was able to get through it. So. A long answer to an interesting question that I've reflected on. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Michael, this has been absolutely fantastic. Ticker symbol is C-A-L-X. Um, people can connect with you on LinkedIn, and they also can go to the website for more information. Hopefully, Michael, will have you on again soon. I think you guys are absolutely fantastic, and congratulations on all the success. Thanks for your time, Adam. It was great.